are listening to the Sustainable Transitions podcast, a podcast series where we explore a transition to a low-carbon society, the communities that lead the way and the people who support them. I am your host, Stephanie Lynn Becker. Today, it's part two of our discussion on reducing carbon with Dr. Ramana Gudipudi and Dr. Lewis Costa. If you want to check out part one, just visit the Sustainability Transitions blog at sustainabilitytransitionsblog.com. Okay, so here's the podcast. Lewis, I know you're not finished yet with your work with the EU calculator, but could you tell us what your biggest findings are thus far? Yeah, so the project is almost half the way now, and we are setting up the, the model, so the model is still not running. But what is becoming a little bit apparent is that this lifestyle component will play a big role. I mean, technology is also very important, and it will also play a huge role, but what we are seeing is that the way that our lifestyle is will be important. And this is particularly in the European context where, well, the technologies are there already and many of them might be possible to implement assuming the costs are fine. But we start perceiving that there will be a huge amount of avoided emissions that actually not so radical changes on on lifestyles and sometimes for the good can bring something about. So there are two sectors we made a little bit more progress than in others. One is the transport and the other is what kind of food we consume. And what we are seeing is that independent of the technology that you have and you keep the agricultural production as it is today, you don't need to change it so much. For your case only now, if we move to a kind of diet more in agreement with the health organization statistics of how we should nourish ourselves, so this amount of vegetables, this amount of fruits, you can already have a huge amount of reduction of emissions, even if the systems of agriculture remain as they are, and they will not. They will become more efficient, of course, with time. And in terms of transport, what was interesting for us to see while scanning the literature was that there might be the promise of more efficient vehicles and now actually in Europe there's been the discussion of cutting diesel car production, prohibiting cars in the cities and this will generate reading the literature, the amount of income that people will not have to spend money on and if electric cars become cheaper and if, I don't know, automation of cars makes all the whole process very efficient doesn't matter. What we found out is that people still want to travel and if they don't have to have costs in traveling to with a diesel car, they will use it to go somewhere else. It's so interesting that people have this urge to travel independent. And if they have savings that they can do, either on time or on money, on some type of transport, because it's really efficient now, mm-hmm. they will use it on other kind of tra- transport. And usually they shift flying. Mm-hmm. And this is one where technology has very little scope to help us with. So it's just preliminary indications on both the nourishment and on the transport sector that actually technology brings us to a certain point, but due to our human behavior, in the case of transport, we might be offsetting that by choosing other kinds of transport. And on the part of the nourishment, there are gains to be made just by eating more healthy, which is kind of a good message in a way. So and you don't have to radically change your lifestyle or maybe some people have to radically change the lifestyle but for the better and with gains on emissions at least for the European case for other countries outside Europe realities are a little bit different and situation might, might not be exactly the same there are countries in Africa that are actually still suffering from undernourishment so probably there are the choices it's not even able to, to do the choice but here where we are more or less comfortable these are the two kind of preliminary things I could point I find this offsetting of transport emissions to somewhere else is very interesting yeah. because I'm, I'm always grounded in that sense, you know. 
only talk about public transportation, commuting within the city, and you know, like prohibiting transportation. Given the current technology, if the technology develops okay, even if we use electric vehicles, if the electricity comes from coal, then not in a very, very good situation, I would say. But for me, what would be then then climate change basically drops down to be an ethical problem. It's basically an ethical problem in the sense like ah, you save some energy and some amount here, and then you immediately use it to actually fly. And you can't actually force people to say, like, no, 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 you're not supposed to fly, you, you can't fly. The, the only thing we saw that reduces the people's transportation urges is age. So, so we need to make everybody yeah, very old. It's <laughs> <interesting. laughs> not about European cities where people are old, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah even so, some people are old, but there are also some people that are still, when I say old, I say above 65. And there, the, the transportation requirements drop in comparison with when we are younger. But if we are younger, and now you have the possibility to telework from somewhere else plus having your pizza delivered by a drone from exactly. Amazon or whatever you say great three hours of my day that I spent I said but then they still want more time to see friends yeah. how but, dare but, they but it's I find it fine it's a basic human yeah. need I think this being in contact with, but it's just to show the, the interconnection and how lifestyle and technology go hand in hand and why you calculate is looking at, at both and not dissociating Usually, I don't know, when you read it, the newspapers of the next climate study that looked how much it will cost to reduce emissions, you always see things like deploying solar, deploying this, shutting down coal, which is fine. But I think they are always missing something that could give a hand. And then they come up with huge costs. One can discuss if they are high or not, but they come up with a number. The EU calculator wants to bring it to the point that say, fine, but we can also have this other way or complementary way. And we hope to prove, based on our best knowledge, that these complementary reductions that we might have from lifestyle changes, not radically, yeah, just sometimes in the case of nourishment, rational lifestyle changes help a hand in reducing emissions, and we want to, to quantify that and bring that to the discourse. So the most sustainable person is probably above 65 and eating healthy somewhat? Probably as yes, <laughs> and, and staying home. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and, and, yeah, also when you're old, your diet requirements change. You don't need so much energy. That's true. That's and, true yeah. and and, uh, you don't spend so much energy at first. It's a lot of conservation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but even still, okay. But, but even still, it's not enough to wait that the population grows old because it will not grow old fast enough. <laughs> and if we keep this messaging, then these other kind of reports will always win because they will focus on technology, which is very attractive. How far do you think the preliminary results of EU can, can be related to other developed nations? Yeah, that's a good question at the moment. I don't know. Because as I told before, the conditions change here. We are sure or we are positive that we can propose this, this change in lifestyles. I could not propose this in some other countries. Here the needs are satisfied, you are able to do so, even in terms of transport. You are able to or to change your transport habits. So a direct link, maybe that's the only thing, could, could not be done. I could not bring this and do the African calculator or do the Asian calculator. So that's why we also interact with stakeholders and experts from the field. We also had a workshop on lifestyles and changes in lifestyles in Brighton last year, where we try to assess some feeling of what could be future lifestyle changes that are possible in Europe without undermining these basic needs for people to commute, to see friends and so on and so forth. So we keep this all in the EU calculator, but you might have options by teleworking and more efficient traveling to reduce the travel that you do, but then you have to do the math on your head and say, okay, what should I do with my free time now? Yeah. And should I invest on flying 
somewhere or drink local beer? Yeah. <laughs> well, without moving. There you go. <laughs> I mean, this is a cartoon-like yeah. thing, but actually, we hope to bring numbers to this. Yeah. I mean, not to the beer, but <laughs> if you have this kind of lifestyle or if you pursue this, then we want people to be able to see the consequences, positive. Others maybe no change on the greenhouse gas emissions of their country and how this scales up to the European Union. One interesting thing I just wanted to add is, especially in Berlin, another city which really fascinates me, it was 50, 60 years ago, it was ravaged by monarchs, all kind of holocaust and everything that you can imagine. Within 50 years, it's such a dynamic city that people are so liberal on Berlin that just 10 years ago when I came to Berlin for the first time, it was really difficult for me to eat outside, except French fries, the only thing I could eat, <laughs> because everything was not vegetarian, I couldn't eat anything, yeah, yeah, yeah. unless I'm willing to spend like 15 euros or something for a decent meal, or the donor, falafel, uh, whatever, and you get sick of it after a couple of times, you don't want to eat, you need some variety, come from India, come on. And then within 10 years, I came back, and within 10 years, it's like vegan stuff, vegan is the yeah. new cool, yeah. Yeah. local food, new cool, bio stuff, new yeah. cool. Yeah. And I just asked myself, there are so many people that I meet in Berlin, they're like, oh cool, you do climate change research, what can I do to make this world a better place? They want to do something, and they don't know what yeah. to do. Yeah. I think this is where the EU calculator can really liberate yeah. and actually send this across and say, like, like this, this is what you could do. If you do this, then this is the amount of greenhouse gas emissions yeah. you can save. If you go by bicycle or if you take the public transportation, this is the amount of yeah. things you save. This gives some kind of practical orientation to people, to non-scientists, can I say yeah. Yeah, sure. uh, to, to actually tell them, like, oh, you can do this, you can do that. You can do that, and you're doing good. In respect to you, don't have to blame the government. Uh, this is the, like this energy vendor thing, and, and all that. It's very top down, but you can already start doing this. Absolutely. And, and I think this is where the EU calculator might really leverage. We hope that. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think is the difference between the EU calculator and other energy models? Yeah, exactly. So, EU calculator will be basically an energy model, but one of the differences, probably the two biggest differences in my opinion what I, I talked already a lot is to have this lifestyle component explicitly other have somewhere implicitly that diets might change but we want like explicitly from the start that people are able to do the connection that Bobby just talked about the other is at the same time kind of in my view one advantage and one disadvantage so the other thing that distinguishes the EU calculator from others is that non-experts will be able to use it so you will have to trust we did the best that we can and you will have to trust the options that we do for example on, on the lifestyle side that yeah. this is kind of a concrete lifestyle I could achieve or I could aim for but if you trust that we did the homework then you will be able to manipulate the model without being an expert on energy modeling and it will hopefully be intuitive enough for you to, to make this connection this at one point one advantage at the other end of the story is that to allow everyone to use it we have to sacrifice some complexity and this is the drawback of having this and one of the simplifications of complexity that we do is that for example economic costs don't play such a big role I mean, it's a bit of a joke we, we will have economics how much will it cost to do certain policies but they are not a predeterminant for them to be implemented so you can go full solar and full green as far as experts tell us that it is possible technically and 
you don't have this cost constraint. So it's a little bit false because there is this economic process behind, but we had to get rid of some complexity to make it accessible. So this is a little bit the trade-off. We hope that by giving a good account on the implications of the costs that the policy might entail, so if it's done, of the environmental consequences of it, of the social consequences of it, etc., etc., we have a module dedicated to employment, for example, which might be an impact of certain measures, of certain policies. So we hope that by giving a good account of these, we can bring people into the discussion. But we had to put it a little bit aside to have a model that is intuitive to use. So this, I think, is the two things that distinguish the, the new calculator from other models. And, and the other models serve certain purposes, and our model will serve other purposes. So our model will not be able to do a cost-benefit analysis of the energy vendor, of the energy change, but it will be at least able to tell you, the normal citizen, what he or she can do and what is his, her role and what could be the government's roles. But for the other type of assessments, the other economic models will have to be used. I think the interesting setup here would be to actually take general perception of people who use the EU calculator and then just take the averages at the, at the lifestyle level and also the averages at the top-down level with respect to the technological level. And then actually give this to an economist and say like, okay, this is like a kind of a dream of an ideal society of a people living within a country and then they, they put it towards the government and say like okay we need this kind of technology in, as a general behavior and we agree on these kind of attitudes mm. I'm talking very very theoretical now but I can imagine that I, I would actually take this as a plus point and then you can actually have an economist do all the yeah, pushing sure, sure. and say like how can without compromising in terms of my economic development mm. I need such technologies in place with these kind of attitudes, how would you actually carry, like, do the whole business that happens? Mm -hmm. How much would it cost? Exactly, how much would it cost? cost? What would be the benefits? And and as a a general opinion of people, and it it kind of gives a clear, I mean, I I would go one step further and actually map all countries in Europe with respect to the kind of behavioral changes that they can, they are willing to give for the sake of a better world, and what kind of expectations from the government, and then map and see like where people are more willing to sacrifice and in terms of their attitude and where people are expecting more from the government to actually come yeah. from a top-down perspective. I would actually look at it as more as an advantage, you know, like because it gives this scope. And then it is like we just have to give it to an economist and say like, okay, dude, now it's your turn. We, we don't have, the only criteria is that the economy should sustain, you know, like with, with these things, it should, we shouldn't obviously go back to like uh, the economy shouldn't dissolve by itself. Well, yeah, those considerations are made when we develop, but we don't have the numbers to, to, yeah, to back it up. But this is, as I said, the trade-off that we had to choose. But one thing, like, uh, no, sorry, I, I also don't know about this details, but do you do it as EU, EU as a whole, or do you do it separately for countries? Okay. The model will operate on a country base, so for each of the European Union member countries, plus Switzerland, and but because European Union is not isolated from the rest of the world, it will have communication with broader regions of particular regions that are interested for material flows and trade. Yeah. But the core is the modeling the 28 countries plus Switzerland explicitly and then there is a, a kind of communication with the rest of the world, mm-hmm. either directly or through some 
major regions when it matters in terms mm. of materials most or food import. But these things are a little bit hidden away in, in the sense that the user will not see it, but they are communicating because we cannot have Europe isolated from what also the rest of the world decides to do. So you're both sort of looking to tackle greenhouse gas emissions on the societal level. Why did you choose that level? For me, it's very clear in the sense like we live in a world which is constantly urbanizing. Urbanizing is an inevitable phenomenon. And it's, it's like almost 60% urbanized. The world is 60% urbanized by whole, but developed regions are far more urbanized. Europe almost 80% urbanized, uh, US as well. And it is projected that by end of the century, irrespective of how we define cities, it's also a bit of challenging to task, but irrespective of how we define cities, end of the century, everybody will be living in cities. So all the energy which is generated, all the goods which are produced, all the agriculture which is produced is will be actually consumed by people who live in cities. So in that sense, it makes, re- uh, okay, apart from the fact that I studied urban planning, on the other hand, more practically, when Donald Trump decided to get out of the Paris Agreement, many cities in the U.S. came forward and said, like, we pledge also for the Paris Agreement because cities are getting more and more powerful than the regions or states where they belong, sometimes even more powerful than the country itself. And then when cities take over power, it becomes also relatively easy to manage it at that level. You don't have to deal with the whole parliamentary setup at a country scale. When you work at the city scale, of course, you still have your municipal laws, your bylaws, and you, you still have to deal with, with your local councillors. But it becomes the scale to actually bring practical changes becomes relatively easy. And you can see the changes in, immediately, uh, how people behave. I could give a classic example. California, actually, if, I, if I'm not wrong, 40% of the electricity generation in California comes from renewable energy. Even with Donald Trump, they say, like, no we will continue generating electricity from renewables. New York as a city, they want to go towards 100% renewables. Cities are the forefront because they take action. And the interesting thing is when you bring two mayors of cities together, they would understand their problems much easier than bringing an expert or bringing somebody from the national level because they consider themselves as peers. And they say like, oh, okay, I have this problem with water supply. I have problem with energy supply. How did you tackle it? And then they will say like, okay, these are the financial mechanisms that we used. Here is the public-private partnership that we determined, and this is how we did it with, with these kind of expertise. And then it becomes very easy to adapt to the solutions and to, to formulate strategies at a local level in this direction. So I think uh, that's why I consider like working at this level. From the EU calculator perspective, again, it's a matter of doing choices. On one hand, we have a tool that wants to put this lifestyle issue into the foreground which is at the end an individual option or individual choice that you do but we simply don't know how lifestyles distribute across countries like well any country we we just don't know what we know we see is a reflection of the lifestyle and this you see on the societal level because usually there's better data for that so we don't know 
how individual Germans travel, but we know aggregatedly that they travel by this amount. So it was a little bit constrained. Although we look at the societal level, we always try to push as we present the model that actually you can have an individual reflection of what your lifestyle is and what are the options to change it. The other constraint that took us to look at the societal level, so at the country scale, was that the tool should allow decision makers at the European Union level give some intuition of them what could be some policies, what could be the gains from those policies in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and resource use. And usually these people are not city planners and are not people concerned with, with individuals. They, they, they look more at the broader scale. So yeah. they would like more to see things reflect on an administrative level that they are familiar with. But we still try to push the individual indirectly, but it's, it's mostly at the societal level for those reasons. And do you think it's more important to tackle greenhouse gas emissions on the societal level or on the individual level? Or is it a combination? Well, the diplomatic answer would be that. But assuming that society is made up of <laughs> I think it would be very important for us ourselves also to reflect on the individual level. And I don't know how to do it, but at the end it's individuals that inspire others, right? And if, if somehow it became cool to be carbon neutral by someone, yeah, then it, yeah, it might make sense sense to look at the individual scale of these very, I don't know, inspiring people that could create a surge of radical changes in, in, in behavior just because, I don't know, it's cool. It could be, it could make sense. But then I would have to say, probably I would not be the person to look at this. I would not be equipped with the things needed to dig into the individual level. It's very important because, I, mean, I don't know, many things start with just the individual action on pushing something. And it might also be useless that an individual like the person that you mentioned yeah. uh, says we leave the, the Paris Agreement and might also not have any influence on the society. I, I don't know. So it's, it's really important to see the, this at the individual level and what messages resonate. But then I myself will not be the, the person to do that. But I would love to see work on that. Fair enough. <laughs> I personally think that individual behavior is important to understand what are his needs and what are his wants. So there is always this clash between what I need and what I want and it becomes very philosophical at an individual level. Sometimes it's also not tangible to say you know, because my needs and what I want constantly change with time. But at a societal level I think it's also important because I'm trying to refer to this uh, transition theory where they talk about niche multi-level perspective, multi -level perspective. Yeah. <laughs> when I met this guy uh, Frank Gills he was like really excited and I could see it in his eyes like what he said was it really makes sense because at an individual level of course this change happens but at a societal level there is this niche space when we talk about better technologies the other day I was seeing that they are actually developing window glasses which can generate electricity so they, they've captured this ultraviolet rays and then they convert it into electricity mm -hmm. connected this is just imagine how the world would look like if our windows can actually generate electricity these are these niche spaces actually happen at a societal level right because this individual at an individual level he has to go and interact and then bring people together mm. and then develop such a like technology into place so for me it's a combination of both you know like either just society or individual what should governments or societies do to reduce carbon or greenhouse gas emissions i could say some of the things that governments should do and that they know, they know. <laughs> and they have been reading it uh, since many years i can tell what i would do if i was in government position and could do something 
something about it. I would just, and this is an idea actually that I've discussed with Bobby when we walked down to the train station. That's where we get really creative while walking down the hill. <laughs> so, that's the key. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's, it is creative, let's see if it's a good idea. <laughs> what we discussed at some points was, okay, reserve some money of the budget that you have. I mean, save on some other thing, I don't know, some less army spending or something like that. And yeah. take the money that you save and for one year pay the best advertising companies, the people that make you buy things you sometimes don't need to come up with a massive advertisement campaign on how to reduce carbon emissions. Yeah. Just this is your product. You will be paid in regard because they don't have anything to sell. It's yeah. just the idea. Sell this. Sell this to the people. I don't know. I mean... Three million? It's not that much. It's not much. <laughs> Three million Three million? I don't know. And, and pay people who do Adidas, all these very known brands that spend a lot of their money on it. Make being green cool and sell it. Just for one, two years, I mean, just what do you have to lose? Well, my understanding, if you target all these individuals on the basis of this marketing approaches, yeah, you, you might have people actually changing just because it's cool. I don't think it will hurt anything. The big companies, advertising companies, they will get any contract being from the government or anyone else. So ju just pay these people, the good ones, those that make you like emotionally attached yeah, yeah. To, to this that you never seen. And I would spend some money on that. I mean, I would have no, no problems <laughs> because I think if it would work, the potential, it's just... This is what I would do. But the governments have many guidelines that actually the Potsdam Institute provides them all kinds of, of think tanks and, and I mean there's a lot of information out there what, what they should do on the societal issue I hope the EU calculator gives a little bit of an entry point what they could do but I still would like to see some millions spent on this advertising some massive <laughs> campaign I don't know some government propaganda yeah that was <laughs> the thing is uh, also the general just to add to what Louis said the general opinion of people who didn't study climate change it's like this picture of doomsday, you know, like huge wave above Manhattan, everybody's going to die. Actually, climate had this been the case, we should consider ourselves lucky. It's not like one time step, pam, everybody died. No, mm -hmm. it's not like that. It's more like a creepy cancer which kills one cell after another. By the time you actually know that you're being eaten up from inside, you're dead. So that's why it's it's very important to change this perception about climate change in general opinion. Mm -hmm. that we, we're not going to see this huge wave about Manhattan, no, no doomsday, no 2012 movies, nothing, not this Hollywood stuff, but it's like far worse, like people migrating from the to drought-prone regions to bigger communities and cities in search for jobs, living in low-lying areas, getting affected with waterborne diseases, moving somewhere else, affecting others, it's like a huge wave, it, it would be difficult to actually trace back and say like where was the exact origin of this problem. For me, if I have to answer this question, it's always easier said than done. Mm. I think it's green economy at a government scale. It's exactly referring to the point which mm. Obama tweeted after Trump took over. So yeah. I would like to see governments to really encourage in better technologies, including research. We are more funding is given to applied research in comparison to fundamental research. I, I read this in a book. It said like qualitative changes in life can be observed only after many years 
years of quantitative fundamental research. You can't say like you do fundamental research today and tomorrow you see like something coming out of the pan. No, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's like years of this quantitative research will accumulate till there comes a day where you say like, ah, uh-huh, okay. So the green economy is really crucial. Like, but I said it's easier said than done. I, I give you an example of India. If India says like, okay, we have all these national solar emissions and renewable energies. But the problem is they are not economically viable from a business point of view. The tariff which they set is very tricky that you would just break even depending on the amount of technology which you have to deploy, amount of money that, that required for such a project against how much money the government actually pays for every kilowatt hour of electricity. When you do all the calculations, you will never make money. You know mm-hmm. why? Because most of the thermal power plants in India, many of them, are actually owned by politicians. So now tell me, why would any politician would formulate a law which goes against his own business? So that's why it's easier said than done. Then somehow this rule has to be broken because we, we are also, we know that we are running out of coal. And maybe we should actually, even if it is politicians in that case, maybe if I'm altruistic for a while, let the politicians build the renewable energy plants and get rid of the coal. <laughs> At least we are doing some good for the society. So that's one thing. And at the society scale, I really like this EU calculator thing, which I think is a very good tool, especially with respect to, to say, the developed regions, like mm-hmm. the developed societies, where your consumption patterns determine emissions much more than what is down to you. But I really don't know what I could do in India to actually go at an individual scale and say, like, if I actually go to people India and say, like, no, 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 let's let's walk or let's take the bus, yeah. like, are you kidding? No, let's take the car. <laughs> it's really tough, so I don't know. I'm still searching for what I can do at a societal level, uh, individual level, I would say. Societal level still urban planning can be tough. How do you think your research can be used to bring about a sustainable transition? Okay, very briefly, I think this is the dream of all the people who work on the field, that their research matters for the sustainable transitions. As far as the European calculator goes, and just in the, the frame of European Union, I hope that by providing a tool that is accessible to everyone, we can a bit democratize the issue of the lifestyles and the implications that they might have on greenhouse gas emissions and how complementary they can be or not, maybe in some cases, we don't know, let's see when it's finished, to the technology changes. So we want to, I think that's the, the best word to describe, to democratize the access to these tools so people see cause, effect of potential behavior could bring. And if we succeed that, I think it will be very awesome already. <laughs> we, I will be totally satisfied. What do you think? I think with respect to sustainable transition and how my research could be used is basically, as I mentioned, as I wrapped it in three boxes. The first is urban form, the second is size, and the size uh, coupled with technology and economic geography and this maturity in cities, economic maturity. So I think it is very important for city governments to understand that you can't penalize people before you provide better infrastructure. A classic example is Singapore. If you have to buy a car in Singapore, you pay at least 200% more as a tax. What the city, uh, the city state government did at the same time is Singapore actually has one of the best efficient public transportation systems in the world. So on one hand, you penalize your public. You say, yeah, you can use it, but you have to pay a lot of parking fee, a lot of taxes, and all this. But 
If you don't want to pay all that, you can use the most efficient public transportation system. So having systems in place and at the same time just encouraging the urban dwellers to actually use this infrastructure in a more efficient way, this could be one of the main takeaways of my research. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ramana and Lurish, for your interesting discussion. Thank you for listening. And if you would like more information on the content of this podcast or sustainability transitions in general, visit the Sustainability Transitions blog at sustainabilitytransitionsblog.com.